Welcome to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. I'm Rick Samprin. Are local cyclists safer in Hamilton? West Nile virus is here. The impact of empty office spaces. Hamilton making strides on accessibility. How many holes of golf did you play this weekend? And a win that felt like a loss for the Ticats. The Good Morning Hamilton podcast begins now. This is the Good Morning Hamilton podcast on 900 CHML. So in some cases, uh, those the congestion or the slowdown in traffic is by design um, to uh, the benefit of all road users. Um, and I can understand the frustration of drivers who are used to driving quickly from point A to point B, and we're implementing these measures that slow them down. Um, but the you know the benefit is uh, for all road users because uh, vehicles who travel slower they're also uh, safer as well. So that is the voice of Mike Feel, traffic manager with the city of Hamilton. We spoke to him last Friday about Hamilton's complete streets manual. These are those traffic calming measures that have been implemented over the last well year or so that have really greatly reduced the number of fatal collisions involving pedestrians this year compared to 2022. I think at this time last year we had 11. This year we have... Two. So that's that's progress. I know it could be frustrating when you're driving downtown, especially, and there's congestion. It seems like every part of the day, but it's on purpose. The city wants you to slow down in your vehicle. So I would assume, I would guess, I would presume, I would think that local cyclists are betting, benefiting from this complete streets manual as well. If vehicles are going slower... I would think that cyclists are probably smiling a little more today. Well, let's find out. He's known as the biking lawyer. David Shelnut joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. David, good morning. How are you? Morning. I'm good. Yourself? I'm okay. Are cyclists benefiting from the complete streets manual? Or is there a, a positive buzz in the city? I can tell you uh, the the level of my anxiety that decreases as the speed of motor vehicles around me decreases uh, is, is, a, is a win for everybody, I think. And, and you said it uh, this time last year, 11 people had died. Um, that's that's just not 11 people. Think of those families, their communities, their employers that that are touched by that uh, that that road violence. So can you speak to the 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 safety of cyclists do cyclists feel safer today in hamilton than they did a year ago i certainly think that the attention that came from last year um that has we've seen local uh, counselors um city staff uh turn towards these issues and try and address them that that makes us feel good it makes us feel seen um, it can be it can be really lonely out there on the roads and and quite scary. But uh, but when you know that the city's listening uh, and that they're taking your safety into consideration, it means a lot. I, I tweeted at the the city of Hamilton the other day for a a, a a sewer grate that was twisted the wrong way that could have caused pretty horrible injury, hmm. and they were right on it. Uh, you know that 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 makes us feel pretty good. What are the most common issues that cyclists encounter on a day to day basis? From from our practice, you know, as you know, we help out people who are injured in in uh, collisions with motor vehicles on their bikes, and it's it's the the turns uh, across left or right when you're just the driver's just not checking their their blind spot, and so when you have a protected bike lane or a traffic calming measure like a protected intersection that forces people to take that second look, uh, that that really helps, you know. 
Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is David Shelnut, the biking lawyer, and we're talking about cycling safety in this community. As you heard David just say, yes, it does feel safe. It is a bit safer now than it was even a year ago. Is there still a big problem area in the city, and and what part of the city is the best for cyclists? Uh, That's a great question. Uh, you know, Cycle Hamilton does a fantastic job in trying to point out for city, uh, the city of Hamilton, where where these these links need to be made, and and that's what it is. It's links. Uh, you need to be able to connect from Cam, um, from Cannon uh, to Lock Street, and you know, uh, we have clients this year. Uh, that were uh, injured on Lock Street and another client that was injured on Ferguson. And the the thing about where they were injured uh, as cyclists is that there was no protected bike lane there. Um, and and that that would have uh, that would have prevented the these injuries in these cases. Um, so putting in more infrastructure on busy places like this, I mean, Lock Street's a fantastic place to do your shopping uh, and pass through for a meal with your family. Um, throwing up a bike lane there uh, w- would just be a great idea. And it was considered in the past and and, and sort of not done. Uh, and, and hey, I've got the clients um, who are injured because of it. For those major streets that do have those bike lanes, those protected bike lanes, you know, Victoria comes to mind, um, Bay Street, Cannon, do we have any stats or anecdotal evidence that they are working? Uh, I'm sure the city has stats. Um, I can tell you from experience, uh, biking, like our office is uh, down by Pier 8, and so I take Cannon quite regularly across town to Gage Park. Um, and uh, even in the in the year and a half that I've been doing that, you know, as people become familiar with this infrastructure, you you see a lot less conflict points. Um, so, you know, as as time goes by, I certainly feel safer there. And I know that drivers are more familiar with it now. Um, and so I would be surprised if the stats weren't going down on 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 collisions and conflicts in, in the, those areas that we do have protected bike lanes now. We only got about 45 seconds. We're going to see and we are seeing a lot more electric bikes on our roads. Do they present different issues? I think the goal uh, for everybody, uh, for from environment to to congestion, is to to get people uh, onto onto bikes, whether it be e bikes or uh, e scooters, like you uh, you all have down there too, or just regular bicycles. They do present challenges, and we need a leadership. And it starts at the province of Ontario, uh, down to the municipal level. On hey, these are the kind of e bikes you can ride. These are the rules, um, and we can't cram them all into the same small bike lane. We've got to start thinking about expanding our infrastructure now to deal with this revolution. Makes a lot of sense. David, appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for joining us. Have a great morning. You too. David Shelnut is the Biking Lawyer LLP. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. West Nile virus is back in Hamilton. It's summer. Mosquitoes are out and about, and a batch of them trapped last week in the city tested positive for West Nile, which makes them the first West Nile virus positive mosquitoes for Hamilton this year. And it is prompted, as you would probably figure out, that the city's medical officer of health to change the West Nile virus risk from low to moderate. And here to help us out... uh, through this uh, West Nile virus uh, maze is Matthew Lawson. He's the manager of health hazards and vector-borne diseases and joins us now on GMH. Matthew, good morning. How are you? I'm well. Thank you very much, Rick. Good morning to you and the listeners. Let's start with where this batch or positive test came from. Can you tell us whereabouts in the city it was? 
well, we don't want to give out specific locations of where our traps are, Rick, but in, it's in the lower Hamilton area. Okay. Uh, came from an area there. We have 20 different traps that we put uh, out throughout the city that represent a good diversity of uh, the geography within uh, Hamilton. And in the past, have these positive test results come from all over the city, or is there a problem area? Not to suggest that the lower city would be the problem, but is there a specific area of the city that time and time again, you figure out there's another positive test? With respect to the mosquito pool testing, no. Uh, you know, we've had positives uh, all over the uh, the city in, a, in, in different places. There is no one area of the city that has a higher risk for having... Um, the West Nile virus within mosquito populations. Once we once we get this one positive uh, pool, it's it's not surprising if others show up. We know that the virus is here; it's in a high enough uh, a level in the mosquitoes, if you will, that the testing can determine it's there. And so that's once we get that that information that oh, we've got a, a positive pool. Uh, that's when we like to just remind the public that, yep, it's here. Uh, and, you know, you could consider any mosquito potentially as carrying West Nile virus. So that's why we encourage to um, take care and do those, uh, take those precautions to avoid getting bitten and uh, and pay attention for any symptoms that you might get. So now that West Nile has returned once again officially to Hamilton because we have this positive test and the risk has gone from low to moderate, uh, what changes now? What is the city doing differently or extra or or new that it wouldn't do from a, a low standpoint? Uh, the extra is just putting out the getting the word out and and reminding people um, the positive test, Rick. Really, you're helping with that service by uh, having this uh, message carried out on your show. Is that reminding people? You know, sometimes we get into our day to day and we we forget about things uh, such as simple as you know. Oh yeah, um, maybe if I'm going out tonight or if I'm going to an evening event uh, at dusk when mosquitoes are very active or in the very early morning, I will take some of those steps to avoid getting bitten um, and uh, preventing bites around the home, you know, like even things like removing standing water from your property if you have it, where areas where mosquitoes can breed. So that's the main thing is um, creating that awareness that, hey, everybody, remember, West Nile virus is still a thing here in Hamilton that you can get and in Ontario, not just Hamilton. Um, and that you need to take precautions if you want to uh, avoid getting uh, the possibility of getting West Nile virus. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML is Matthew Lawson, the manager of health hazards and vector-borne diseases with the city of Hamilton. And we're talking about West Nile virus back in the city after a positive test uh, in the lower city, which has changed the risk level in the city from low to moderate. Right now we're in the moderate risk stage. When would it become a high risk or an elevated risk scenario? What would have to happen? Uh, it would likely move to the elevated risk scenario if we see any human cases uh, show up in our surveillance. And um, also it could be over multiple traps going positive across the city. That may also trigger it into a, a, a higher risk rating. And does the city's action plan change at all if, if that does occur? The city's action plan doesn't necessarily change. It's reactive to uh, the areas where we find out that it is going positive. We may be doing more um, larviciding on surface water areas. Uh, as you may know, the city has a 
has contracted uh, mosquito control services. And so there is uh, one of the popular places that they like to breed is the standing water within our sewer catch basins. And so there is a catch basin uh, biociding program that happens, or sorry, the uh, with methoprene tablets in the catch basins and what's called surface water. And so surface water is water pooling and standing in certain naturalized areas. Those are also treated uh, in certain circumstances when larvae are found, um, mosquito larvae are found that uh, could be carrying the virus and uh, a biopesticide is used on those surface water areas to control. So we do do, um, we work with the contractor to identify where we're finding uh, potentially the, um, the positive pools of mosquitoes and having the contractor um, do additional treatments and do surveys for water and standing water in those areas. And um, as you may recall, like we've had a we've had a pretty wet spring and summer, and so there are a lot of pockets of uh, standing water about. And if it is on city lands, we take the steps to control it. All great information from Matt Lawson, the manager of health hazards and vector borne diseases. Matthew, thanks for the time today. Thank you very much, Rick. Appreciate it. Thanks again to Matthew. To protect yourself and your family from mosquitoes, the city of Hamilton recommends, number one, avoid being bitten by mosquitoes, which for some is easier said than done. Uh, Use a mosquito repellent containing DEET. You can avoid areas where mosquitoes are known to be present or cover up by wearing light-colored long sleeves and long pants when in mosquito areas, such as wooded areas on the golf course, of course, in the garden. And reduce mosquito breeding sites by removing standing water at least weekly from your property. Lots more information online at hamilton.ca forward slash West Nile to keep yourself and others safe. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. If you are back to work or working these days, is it full time in the office? Are you on a hybrid schedule? Maybe one week or one day in, four days off, or two and three, or three and two, or four and one? Or are you still completely remote? Well, a lot of people are still completely remote nowadays. As businesses have said, listen, this is, this is much cheaper. Much cheaper to do business. We don't need to put you in a place and rent out said place, or lease said place. This is really having a massive impact on commercial real estate because, well, it's in big trouble these days. From Toronto to Vancouver and New York City to San Francisco, more and more office spaces are sitting empty. And there's a massive ripple effect. Jack Kelly is the CEO of WeCruiter.io and the Compliance Search Group, also a senior contributor at Forbes and co-host of the Blind Ambition podcast. And joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Mr. Kelly, good morning. How are you? Hey, good morning, Rick. Thanks for having me on the show. Well, one of your, uh, I mean, uh, all of your tweets catch my eye, but this one in particular last week, I think it was, a big reason cities want workers to return to the office. That really caught my eye because this is a big issue. Not only in Toronto, but here in Hamilton, we're seeing seeing some empty office spaces. Why do cities want workers to come back? I'm so glad we could talk about it because usually the conversation is, hey, I want to work remote. It's not fair that I have to go into the office. And I'm not I'm not ragging on people who want to go, but that's the debate, you know, that kind of conversation where the bosses are, hey, I want you in here so I can control you and, and I could be the boss. 
But the real story to me, the bigger picture is that what happens if people don't go back to the office, the people who own the buildings aren't going to get rent. They're not going to have you know their money. And I'm not, no one is going to have a GoFundMe for them. But what will happen is they'll have to declare bankruptcy. They'll be in bad situations and they get their loans from the regional and small banks. And the regional small banks, you know, were in bad situation, got a little better, but still not perfect. So if they don't pay back the loans to the banks, these banks are going to start defaulting and falling apart. And you're going to have just a disaster. Then the other thing, Rick, happens is this. When people don't go back to the office, the whole ecosystem of restaurants, bars, nail salons, barbers, gyms, restaurants, no one, pizza joints, no one's going to go there. And then it becomes a ghost town. And think of what's going on in San Francisco now. People aren't coming into the office because they're like really adopted remote. So all that happens is you see in the streets, it's, first of all, it's empty. But the people who are there, a lot of drugs, a lot of homelessness, a lot of people, a lot of crime, a lot of open selling drugs. So that discourages people to come in. So you get this downward spiral. Now the stores close, the restaurants close. Now you don't have tax revenue coming in. If you don't have tax revenue coming in, what happens? You have to cut the police, you have firemen, you have to cut the teachers. So you just get this disaster. And I'm glad we could talk about it, Rick, because the whole conversation usually is, I want remote, I want you in the office. But it leaves out the big picture of what happens if we go down this trajectory. The other part of this, too, is you mentioned, you know, cutting police or fire. And if those levels of emergency service want to be retained, cities are going to say, hey, you, the taxpayer, you're going to have to pay more yes. because people aren't going downtown to spend money to, you know, contribute to the economy. A hundred percent. So this is what happens. So either you have to cut them or you have to raise taxes or both. Mm -hmm. Now, that's probably what will happen. So you raise taxes on everybody else. But at the same time, you're going to cut police, firemen, teachers, nurses, you know, all sorts of municipal workers. So like it just gets, so then what happens in like a New York City or Chicago, LA, um, in Toronto, what have you, it, it just degrades the whole inner city. And then what happens, it just spirals out of control. Be like here in the States where you had Detroit that once was great and now it's a mess, you'll end up having all these you know cities that just, just fall apart. We're speaking with Jack Kelly, the CEO of WeCruder.io and the Compliance Search Group, also a senior contributor at Forbes and co-host of the Blind Ambition podcast. You're listening to Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. We're talking about office vacancies uh, in Canada and the U.S. Uh, obviously, a lot of businesses between our two nations intertwined mm -hmm. as well. How close are we to that tipping point? Because here in Hamilton, the office vacancy rate downtown is about 19%. I think it's 30% in Vancouver, and I think it's even more in places mm -hmm. like San Francisco. How close are we to that tipping point? You know, I, I gave the doom and gloom at first. <laughs> but to be fair, to put in perspective, capitalism is a good system. Because what will happen, I think, is people are going to find ways to retrofit these big office buildings. They're going to probably give you an example. Here in New York, you had Wall Street, which used to be all investment banks, broker dealers and such. Now, if you go there, they're families. So what they've done is changed Wall Street and make it mixed use. So you have on the ground floor, different restaurants, bars, what have you. Then you have people living in their apartments and then maybe you have some offices thrown in there as well. So you have this kind of eclectic mix 
this hybrid of things. And I, f- I have a feeling what's going to happen is that the big money on the sidelines are going to say, wait a minute, maybe we can go into San Francisco and change it. You know, there's a housing shortage. So maybe we could take these office buildings, change it to more residential, and maybe we could help out people who can't afford to buy a house. So there might be a, a positive silver lining to that. Is that happening to any great degree in any cities right now? I'm not seeing that. I'm hearing talk of it, but I'm not seeing it. And I think in part right now, people are still worried about higher interest rates, you know, high inflation. So I think people who have the big money are still waiting to see how things are going to play out. But to me, it does feel that's the direction it's going to head to. Is this happening in places like Europe as well? Do you know? You know, I, I was just there actually on a family vacation. They, what I'm seeing there, high inflation. High, I was shocked how much money, high inflation. They're having the same problems with, you know, getting back to the office. Uh, so very similar, yeah. Interesting, interesting scenario. As we know that there's a massive ripple effect, and you mentioned, you know, some of the businesses that would mm-hmm. be impacted. Everyone at the end of the day would be impacted. Jack, really appreciate your time this morning. Thanks for chiming Thanks in. Sir. Thank you so much. Jack Kelly is the CEO of WeCruder.io and the Compliance Search Group, co-host of the Blind Ambition podcast, senior contributor at Forbes. You can check out this article uh, on Forbes.com. When we look at commercial real estate, just in the U.S. alone, just in the U.S. alone, it's worth $20 trillion, commercial real estate in the States. Not as much here in Canada, of course, but we're probably talking about multi, multi billions of dollars at stake. And never mind the ripple effects. Massive story. We need people, whether it's workers or people live in condos, whatever the case is, back in our downtown. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. Last week we talked about safe streets and the city of Hamilton's complete streets manual, which... This year, compared to last year, in terms of pedestrian-related fatalities, it's been night and day. What do we have, 11 last year at this time? This year we have two. So slowing down traffic, you know, making things a little more comfortable for pedestrians has obviously worked. The, 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 the proof is in the pudding. The numbers are out there. When it comes to accessibility in this city, how accessible is Hamilton? For those who have issues with mobility, is our city an easy place to get around? Are we doing a good job? Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond and a volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. He joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Anthony, good morning. How are you? Good morning, Rick. How are you? Not too bad. We're talking about accessibility in this city. How accessible is Hamilton? Are we doing a good job? Well, Rick, uh, to be quite honest and frank with you, accessibility has always been a work in progress uh, in Hamilton and cities surrounding. It, it, it just leaves a lot to be desired, and there's a lot more work to be done. So what are we doing uh, an okay job in, and what needs to improve? Uh, well, certainly the, what needs to improve is the, the autonomy and the agency of people with disabilities and having a voice that's actually listened to and heard. And the idea of accessibility being at the forefront of a conversation rather than considered an afterthought. When we're inclusive from the start, uh, we all matter. And we really need to take that to heart. And in Hamilton alone, I know I've said this before, but a 27.7% and growing percentage of people with disabilities in Hamilton 
is greater than the provincial and national averages. And that's a, an abundance of talent that needs to be um, more utilized in a much better way. So when developers are planning buildings or streetscapes, accessibility has to be considered on how to, you know, get people around, right? Absolutely. And, and for example, if you're building a, a commercial building that has an accessible button to enter the building, you know, that uh, nice potted plant for cosmetic reasons in front of the accessible door button, it's really not a good place for it. Mm. It takes away the functionality. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And in terms of uh, getting around town on sidewalks and the like, or uh, I'm sure there are, pardon the pun, stumbling blocks at every tur- at every cr- at every uh, turn. Yeah, and uh, notwithstanding the fact that earlier in June I did have a uh, fall myself on Concession and Upper Wentworth, and because of the the poor infrastructure and you know the wear and tear over time does take a toll on the city. And we just need to be more advanced and proactive in getting the job done and getting the job done the right way. What is the update on concession? Is that I know there was a Band-Aid solution that was put in. Has that been repaired now? There's still the Band-Aid solution, and there's talks about getting the, the completed um, curb cut done properly, but as of yet, there is no... No update at this time. Hmm. Our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML, Anthony Frazina, founder of Above and Beyond and volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. We're talking about how accessible Hamilton is. Uh, you were at the Shadok Twin Pad Arena recently to, well, you, you tell us what was going on. Absolutely. It was a dynamic symbol of the access painting party in, in conjunction with the forward movement. Uh, Hamilton adopted the dynamic symbol of access in 2017 of which I am a part of that organization. So alongside Councillor Spadafora and Mayor Horvath, we came together to paint the dynamic symbol of access on all the accessible parking spots at uh, Shadok Twin Pad Arena last week, which was amazing. So you had a paintbrush, so to speak, in hand. Oh, they gave me a paint gun. <laughs> <laughs> and how did that go? I covered the entire spot and uh, made a little bit of extra paints and, all, and other places. <laughs> like your clothes? I missed my clothes. Okay, well, that's good. That's, that's the say, important I thing. I can't say I missed other people's clothes. <laughs> Why is this symbol important? Well, the dynamic symbol of access is really uh, important when it comes to change, being proactive in terms of how we look at accessibility and understanding the fact that accessibility uh, and Disability can happen to anyone at any time, you know, whether it be temporary or permanent. So it's understanding the fact that when we think about accessibility and inclusion long term and all day, every day, through conversations and through uh, other means, that we're really putting the community at large uh, uh, forward. Well, and the other thing, too, and I'm not sure, I'm I'm pretty sure this is the goal in mind when when changing that symbol, is is the old one kind of looked stale and it was almost like, you know, this person needs some help. Whereas the other one is, hey, I'm in charge, I'm moving forward, we're getting things done. Absolutely. And autonomy, agency, dignity, and respect for anybody is is important. And the dynamic symbol of access really uh, demonstrates the forward movement and the progression of accessibility rather than the actual stagnant uh, person who uses a wheelchair uh, in the sitting position. That is awesome. We need more of these uh, symbols painted in uh, parking lots uh, throughout the city. And it's uh, it's people like Anthony who are going to get that job done. Always appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the rest of the day. 
Thanks, Rick. You too. I'll see you Saturday. You got it. Anthony Frazina is the founder of Above and Beyond and volunteer director of media relations with the Ontario Disability Coalition. He's getting stuff done in this community. You're listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast from 900 CHML. How many rounds of golf did you play this weekend? Or in the past month? Or even in the last year? How many how many rounds of golf? How many golf holes would you have played within the last year. Well, our next guest played a remarkable 63 holes on seven different golf courses in one day in PEI last week. That's a lot of golf and a lot of traveling around. Sam McPhail is his name. Sam is the executive director of Golf PEI and joins us on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sam, good morning. How are you? Hi, good morning. Thanks for having me. Uh, Have you recovered? Yeah, I'm actually, I was joking with people, uh, like it wasn't, I was no tighter than I would have been on an, after a normal round of golf. Um, the next morning I was at the gym at 6.30 and felt pretty good. Wow. So is this going to be a weekly thing? I don't think so, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> what was the reasoning behind this? Um, I think it, it really it was just kind of a marketing idea that we had. Uh, me, myself, and another gentleman, Ben King, who's a, a known figure in the golf industry on PEI, we thought, well, you know what, PEI has, uh, we're the smallest province, but we're big on golf. Um, we have many courses within, you know, close proximity. So how many do you think we could play in a day? Um, so we started at 6 in the morning, uh, one part of Prince Edward Island, and ended around 8.45 at night. Um, and just played nine holes at seven different courses. Uh, we were never much more than a 15-minute drive from course to course. So just trying to highlight um, you know, the proximity and the value and the uh, amount of courses on Prince Edward Island. What was the biggest challenge in coordinating this? Um, due to the nature of my job with Golf PI, it was it was just more so making sure the courses were aware. Um, we, you know, some of them we did get sl- slowed up a bit, but we were never up ten minutes off our uh, desired time, I guess, to start. Um, I would say the biggest challenge was keeping motivated after the first twenty-seven holes to keep going because you know I was getting hot out, uh, getting hungry, tired, whatever. But no, we, we, there was never a point during the day where I was like, oh, my goodness, I wish I was home or, oh, my goodness, I wish we were done. Um, I think <laughs> I joked a lot, too. The biggest benefit was every nine holes, we'd hop in a truck with air conditioning and drive, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to the next course. So you got a nice little refresher. <laughs> How hot did it get? It actually wasn't too bad. Like, I think it was a high of 27 that day, but there, there seemed to be a bit of a breeze. Um, so it was never, you know, like, like I said, it was never overwhelmingly hot. So what was the best part of the day? I think the best part of the day, which sounds funny, but by the fifth and sixth and seventh course, there was people at the golf courses, just like public golfers, coming up and asking us if we were the golf PEI guys um, doing the marathon. So not that we had a huge fan base, but just <laughs> being able to see you know, some junior golfers or some people that had been following along during the day on Instagram um, that they kind of took notice. But I think all, all the reception at each of the courses too, like, um, just getting there and then welcoming us with open arms and, you know, trying to make the best. It might have been only nine holes at each of the courses, but they're trying to make the best of it. Sam McPhail is our guest on Good Morning Hamilton on 900 CHML. Sam is the executive director of Golf PEI, played 63 holes on seven different golf courses in one day in PEI last week. What is the golf in PEI like? Uh, what we really try to sell on is the value and proximity. So, you know, you, you can come to Prince Edward Island. It's not going to be a, a punching bag on your wallet. Um, you're able to come and enjoy 
enjoy it. Uh, I think the biggest thing too is PEI as a destination is a great a great spot. So yes, you can come for golf, but what once you're here, you can do you know 500 other things. Whether it's go to the beaches, go to the restaurants, go to um, you know shows at the Confederation Center. There's just there's a, a fuller experience in the vacation to Prince Edward Island, um, especially when you choose golf. If someone's listening to this thinking, well, I, I should play 63 holes in one day, what advice do you have for them? Uh, start planning um, and, <laughs> and pack, pack lots of water. Uh, no, it's very doable. I think 63 holes might be a bit excessive, but there's no reason you couldn't play four separate courses in a day on PEI. Um, it just takes a little extra planning. What was the weight like? Because that's one of the biggest bugaboos of going out for a round of golf is, you know, some rounds might be a little slower because, you know, it's really busy on a particular day and, you know, you're you're waiting around a lot. What was it like for you guys? It honestly wasn't that bad. There was only a couple courses where, like, you know, we were running into some summer issues. But I think, to again, the nature of my position, um, the courses knew that they wanted to kind of keep some uh, openness in the course. So uh, we were able to kind of scoot through, no problem. And were you guys walking or did you have a cart? Uh, no, I, we wouldn't have done it if we were walking, I don't think. <laughs> yeah. um, no, we were, we were carting the whole way. So the, the Guinness World Record, I don't know if you know this, the Guinness World Record for most golf holes played by an individual in 24 hours walking is 420 holes. This was wow. achieved by Eric Burns of Half Moon Bay, California, back in 2019. That's a lot of holes in one day. Yeah, that's a lot. I don't know if I could do that, but <laughs> maybe next time I'll bump it up to 72. There you go. Sam, appreciate the time. Thanks for joining us, and uh, good luck on your next uh, round of golf. Thank you. Thanks for having me. That's Sam McPhail, the Executive Director of Golf PEI. 63 holes in one day is a lot, and especially... At seven different courses, right? You're you're done your nine, and then you're off to the next course, and then you're kind of starting it out all over again. Although that's that's a lot of fun, you know. Seven different courses, you're playing, you know, a bunch of different holes. On the flip side, four hundred and twenty while walking is insane. <laughs> that is absolutely insane. Guinness Book of World Records saying that. Eric Burns, this American back in 2019 who broke this record or, or set the record, uh, played on behalf of the Let Them Play Foundation, which is an organization providing scholarships to youth sports groups so they can purchase equipment, uniforms, other supplies, which is awesome. And he used an eight iron during the entire attempt and glow-in-the-dark golf balls all day. He walked 105 miles during this 24-hour period in which he played 400 20 holes and he walked the whole thing wow talk about stamina and perseverance you're listening to the good morning hamilton podcast from 900 chml friday night in the nation's capital it was a win for the tiger cats that felt like a loss the call boldly by mitchell trying to go straight ahead and oh no Bo was very slow to get up. Oh, no, he's grabbing his right ankle. You have to be kidding me. Bo Levi Mitchell is hurt. He's hurt on this play from the two where he's basically just trying to dive ahead. Really wild stuff. Tiger Cats beat Ottawa on Friday night, 16-12 to in what was a defensive slugfest, but, and it's a big one, 
They lost quarterback Bo Levi Mitchell to a serious lower right leg injury at the end of the game. There's like 11 seconds left to go in the game. He's now on the six-game injured list, and he had, well, an up-and-down game. He threw for 353 yards and a couple of touchdowns, but also threw five interceptions in Hamilton's win. John Salavanis is an analyst with the Ticats Audio Network and former offensive line coach with the Tiger Cats and joins us now on Good Morning Hamilton. Coach Sal, how are you today? Hey, good, Rick. How are you doing? I'm good, but, uh, you know, the, a lot of Ticats fans are happy with the win, but extremely concerned that Bo Levi is back on the six-game injured list. What are your takeaways from Friday's victory? Well, uh, you know, in regards to the Twitter uh, poll that you guys are running about the Grey Cup, here's the way I would answer it. You know, uh, the offense, defense, and special teams, you got to win two out of three of those. Obviously, we didn't win the offensive side, but <clears throat> on the special teams, they held their own. They had great coverage on kicks, and uh, uh, McAllister nearly broke a punt return. But the win for that uh, team was on defense. They came to play. They were very creative in their game plan. Uh, they did a better job in the secondary. Uh, Crum was 13 to 22 for only 158 yards, no TDs, and they got one interception on them. So uh, the defense uh, played the, the game the way you've got to play it. And if the defense can play that way the rest of the way uh, and your special teams hold up, then I think you got a great chance of being in the Grey Cup. Yeah, the defense is really rounding into form, playing its best football over the last month or so, for sure. The special teams we know, with Jeff Reinbold at the helm, is pretty doggone good, with Mark Leggio not missing a field goal. I mean, different set of circumstances when it comes to converts. He's missed, I think, three of them now. But field goal-wise, he is perfect. And you mentioned uh, Tyreek McAllister. He can break one at any point. So that brings us to the offense. Taylor Powell is going to be the guy at quarterback. What do you see in him? Well, I think Taylor Powell, is very much like Crum, is, is uh, for the Red Blacks. You know, he's a young quarterback that's strong, that can run the ball, has a good arm, but it, it all goes back to the fact that, you know, your young quarterbacks are, are going to be under pressure all the time. So it goes to the offensive line to be able to protect him. If they can give him time, and he will be willing to run the ball when he has to, pull it down and, and take it upfield uh, for first downs, then I think uh, Powell can lead this team uh, the rest of the way. Given his psyche when he came in the first time around to start in place of, obviously Mitchell was still on the six-game injury list, Matthew Schiltz gets injured, and I didn't think Powell played that bad in his first start, knowing that he's now the guy probably for at least the next month or whenever Schiltz can come back. Do you think between the ears that Powell is really ready to go? Yes, I, I, you know, he would not be in that position, Rick, if, uh, if he was not a confident player. You know, quarterbacks are a different breed, uh, much like kickers are. You, you've got to understand that they're supremely confident in what they can do. Uh, the difference will be, can you give him a playbook in which he, he can operate uh, successfully? And uh, don't forget, we've got Loxley now, uh, as a backup also, and you saw Loxley in that game uh, break away and make a great run. Uh, to me, that's the kind of a, a quarterback uh, combination that you need, uh, Powell and Loxley, 
uh, to go the next month. Yeah, Kyle Loxley with a 75-yard touchdown run after catching a bubble screen, and he went all the way to the house, which was one of the highlights of the game. So up next Saturday is Montreal. They're coming off a win last night against Calgary, in which only a defensive touchdown was scored. There was 12 field goals in that game, six for each team. Um, what do you like and, or, or not like about what the Alouettes bring to the table? Well, the Alouettes are, are an up-and-coming team. Jason Moss has got them playing very well. Uh, they're having their problems on the offensive side at times. But, uh, again, you know, defensively, they're a great football team. Uh, they play extremely well on the defensive side, and, and you know, they're able to, uh, to win games with their defense, just like we're talking about with the Tiger Cats. Lastly, and this is one of the big storylines of the Canadian Football League, the Edmonton Elks are not only 0-8, they've lost 21 straight games at home, the most all-time in North American pro sports. What do you do in Edmonton? Uh, what did we do? What was it back in 2001 or two that we were 0-17? 1-17. Uh, <laughs> we won one, one, one game, Sal. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, it's, it's really a sad uh, thing, and... Uh, it's bad for the league, and that, that's the one thing that worries me. You know, when you get a, a great team like Edmonton uh, always puts on the field, uh, they've got to come back. You, you can't allow that uh, that franchise uh, to not have fans in the stands and not be a part uh, of the uh, whole scenario of win and loss. Yeah, they they got to win a game pretty soon. Hopefully it's not August 17th when they're here in Hamilton, but uh, they, they should have a win in their back pocket, who knows, sometime soon. Sal, we'll have to leave it there. Thanks for your time today. Oh, you're more than welcome, Rick. Always good to talk to you. John Salavanis, analyst, Ticats Audio Network, former O-line coach with the Tiger Cats. Thanks for listening to the Good Morning Hamilton podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday mornings from 530 to 9 on 900 CHML and online at 900CHML.com. Canada may be known for its landscapes and friendly people, but beneath the surface lies a darker side of crime, history, and the paranormal. Since 2017, the award-winning Dark Poutine podcast has explored the shadowy corners of the Great White North and beyond, delivering chilling tales from a uniquely Canadian perspective. Hosted by Mike Brown and Matthew Stockton with over 300 episodes and fresh releases every Monday, Dark Poutine is your weekly ticket to the creepier side of Canada. Listen to Dark Poutine on Apple, Spotify, Amazon Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.